Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest he had but the chief priest had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to this festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Praise be to God. So I grew up near Nashville, Tennessee, which means that there were two kinds of music that were played in my house. I also grew up in the church, right? So. The two kinds of music we listened to were country and contemporary Christian music. That was pretty much it. In fact, I still have a really hard time listening to country music today. I learned to appreciate it later, but growing up inundated by it, where it was like the only thing that was around all the time, it just got on my nerves for a long time. Um, So did contemporary Christian music after a while, so I had to kind of take a break from it for a while. When I was a kid, one of my favorite bands was, or groups, they weren't really a band. One of my favorite groups was this group called For Him. They were this male ensemble group, and they could harmonize beautifully. They had a kind of a high range. And one of the songs that they sang that was one of my favorites as a kid was a song called Strange Way to Save the World. You might have heard the Rascal Flats version, which just married everything, contemporary Christian music and country music. So that really just drove me nuts for a, for a minute. Um, It was called Strange Way to Save the World. Now, it's a Christmas song. It's a song about Joseph, the when Jesus is born um, in in this stable in Bethlehem, or at least born into this manger in Bethlehem. Uh, And the song uh, just ponders, God, why? Why this? Joseph asks, why me? Why this baby? Why not another ruler? Why this this stable in Bethlehem, why Mary? She's just an ordinary girl. Why, God? This, this is a really strange way to go about your plan. And as I read the stories about Jesus, as I read the Gospels and, and I read the Scriptures, there are so many points in the story where I ask the same thing. Like, why? This is such a weird plan, God. I and mean, we talked about it last week. The slaughtered lamb on the throne of God. Not the warrior king, not the sword-wielding, you know, armored warrior, but a slaughtered lamb sitting on the throne of God, ruling over all the world, ruling over all creation. Like, this is God's plan? A dead king? 
This is God's plan, this little baby born to poor parents in a backwater in, in Israel? Like, there, there are so many points in the story of Jesus that you look and you go, I don't understand, God. How is this going to accomplish your purpose? And, and we can take some comfort in knowing that even the people closest to Jesus wondered the exact same thing. Terry just read it, right? Jesus' own disciples on this day that Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem are wondering, what in the world is going on? Like, this is not what we expected. This is not how you save the world. This isn't how you take over the world. This is not how you drive the Romans out and free God's people. This is not how it's supposed to happen. But that's what happens. I mean, this, this episode where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey is, is strange just on the face of it. So here's what's happening. We, we go to the Gospel of John today. He offers a shorter version of this story, but he pairs this story of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem with the raising of Lazarus. So this is toward the end of Jesus' life. We're entering into the last week of Jesus' life before he'll be crucified in Jerusalem. And not long ago, Jesus had been in the town of Bethany, and he had raised a boy named Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was probably not a man. I know sometimes our Bible stories and our pictures pictured Lazarus as kind of a grown man. But he lives with his sisters, probably in their father's house which means Lazarus is most likely a boy. But Jesus loves Lazarus. In all the times that Jesus has come to visit Jerusalem, he visits Bethany. Bethany is only a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, and it's in this really beautiful, picturesque place. Like, when you go to Bethany you, and you want to go to Jerusalem, from Bethany you have to kind of climb over a little hill. There's a little incline, and then you reach the top of the Mount of Olives, it's the highest point east, immediately east of Jerusalem. And as you're at the top of the Mount of Olives and you're looking down, you see the temple of Yahweh, the temple of God, and you see the eastern wall of Jerusalem. And then you go down from the Mount of Olives, from the top, you go down into what's called the Kidron Valley, and you cross the stream, and then you go up into what's called the Golden Gate of the Temple. It's one of the most beautiful views of Jerusalem you can have from the top of the Mount of Olives. And this is the way Jesus always approaches the city of Jerusalem. In fact, if you're coming from the north in Galilee where Jesus lives and you want to go to Jerusalem, this is the way you go. You go down by the Jordan River and you approach Jerusalem from the east and you cross over the Mount of Olives. So it's convenient. Jesus meets this family, this family who lives in the town of Bethany, Mary and her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus and probably their father who all live in this town of Bethany, and apparently they've got space for Jesus and his followers to stay. So they, it seems like they're probably pretty well off. And as they're staying with them on the regular, every time they come to Jerusalem, Jesus builds a relationship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And he, he loves them. So Lazarus gets really sick. And Martha and Mary write a note to Jesus, and they have it taken to Jesus. And Jesus gets the note, and we read that when Jesus gets the note that Lazarus is really sick and about to die, Jesus decides to wait to go to Bethany. He intentionally allowed Lazarus to die. 
Now, how does that sound, right? Does that sound like in the character of Jesus, in the character of God? You think Jesus meets a sick person, he just wants to heal them. But we're told that Jesus specifically chooses to wait until Lazarus has died in order to travel to Bethany. And when his disciples ask him why, he says it's going to end in God's glory, don't worry. So Jesus gets to Bethany, and Martha and Mary are just broken because their brother Lazarus has passed away. Their brother Lazarus is dead, and they're beyond hope. And now he's been dead three days. What you got to understand is, like, even in a world that believes in the possibility of miracles and resurrection, it don't happen after three days. Three days dead, you're dead. You're stone dead. There's no coming back from that. Even if resurrection is possible, this is three full days after you're dead. You're, you're starting to stink. You're starting to decompose. Like, even if you could come back, would you be like this weird zombie creature? Like, what? this is just not something that happens. And so Jesus shows up at Bethany after Lazarus has been dead three days, and he tells Mary and Martha, don't fear. And they say, oh, we have faith that he'll be raised again in the resurrection. And we're told then that Jesus wept with them. Knowing what he would do, knowing that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, knowing how this was going to end, Jesus still is brokenhearted with Mary and Martha. He still mourns with them for their pain, for their loss, not for their lack of faith, not for anything that's wrong in the situation, but simply because his, his beloved sisters are mourning. He weeps with them. And then, of course, we know the story. Jesus is taken out to the family tomb where Lazarus has been laid. There's another indication that this is a well-off family. They have a tomb. And so Jesus is taken out to the tomb where Lazarus has been laid. And Jesus says, pull away the stone. And the family goes, whoa, whoa, Jesus, He's gonna, it's going to be really smelly. Like, you don't, you don't want that. Jesus is like, no, seriously, roll away the stone. The stone's rolled away, and Jesus standing there says, Lazarus, come forth. And the boy Lazarus, still wrapped in his grave clothes, walks out. And you can imagine the picture, right? You can imagine Mary and Martha standing there and, and their tears of mourning become tears of joy and they rush their brother. And Jesus hugs the boy Lazarus and there's this beautiful reunion. So after that, all of the area of Jerusalem, remember this is only like two miles from the city of Jerusalem. All the area of Jerusalem learns about this story, about the guy who raised a boy from the dead after three full days. And the rumors begin circulating about Jesus. And all the people who had been present for the resurrection of Lazarus are telling everybody about this Jesus guy. He can raise someone after three days. And you know the questions start coming up. People start, the scuttlebutt starts. Could this be him? Could this be Messiah? Could this be the guy? Anybody who could raise someone from the dead after three full days could drive out the Romans. This could be our general. This could be our king. This could be the guy who's here to free us all. What more is there than to raise someone from the dead after three days? If you can defeat death like that, then you can certainly defeat the Romans who oppress us. And so the scuttlebutt's going about, and people are intrigued, and they want to see Jesus. And so people start making pilgrimages to to Bethany. You can, you can imagine today, like, a, a big news story goes out about something that happens at a house. People start gathering at the house, right? People start going and making pilgrimages to the house just to see what's going on, to maybe get a glimpse of the family if something crazy has happened. 
Well, this is like the first century version of that, right? Without Twitter and without social media, the word still gets around and the people start showing up at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house and they're, they're gathering around outside. They just want to catch a glimpse of Lazarus, of the boy who was raised from the dead. And they're hoping maybe, maybe just maybe, when he comes back, they'll see Jesus. So then... The Passover is coming. This is now sometime after the resurrection of Lazarus. The Passover is coming. This is the largest gathering in Jerusalem all year long. You see, there are three feasts that every faithful Jew has to pilgrimage to Jerusalem for if they possibly can. But Passover is the big one. Passover is the time where if you can only make one of the big three feasts, this is it. We have a a report from the historian Josephus of just not very long after this episode, maybe 35 years later, of a Passover in which 2.7 million people show up in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, they think that's an exaggeration, but even if it is, like let's say 1.5 million people show up to this city of about 200,000, right? They're taking over everything, right? And so this is the big time of the year. And Passover celebrates the creation of the nation of Israel. It celebrates the event when the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then God, through a man named Moses, called them out of slavery and made them into a nation. Passover is the Independence Day celebration for Israel. It's the day that you celebrate the freedom from slavery in Egypt and the freedom and independence of God's people as they traveled to their land. This is a big, big, big deal. So as the people are gathering, all of those rumors about Lazarus and Jesus that were circulating among the population of Jerusalem, now they're circulating among all these hundreds of thousands of people who have gathered. And they all want to see him. Everybody wants to see this guy who raised a kid from the dead after three days everybody's intrigued. They want to know. They want to see. They want to just catch a glimpse of this dude. And so they begin to gather around Bethany. And that's where we are here at the beginning of this passage. All these people are gathering around this little town of Bethany outside of Jerusalem, trying to see Jesus, trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. And as they're doing that now, the leadership of Israel The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, that is, the leaders of the nation, they're getting nervous because now you got hundreds of thousands of people who are interested in this guy, Jesus, because of what they heard him do for Lazarus. And you can, you can get like messianic expectation, the expectation that the Messiah is here, that the Christ is here, is running high. And Passover is kind of a nationalistic holiday anyway, right? If you've got any inclinations to like resist Rome and to rebel against Rome, and if there was ever going to be an event in Jerusalem where like the Jews were going to rise up and overthrow the Romans, Passover would be it. Passover would be the time people would take advantage of that kind of energy and build an army and fight Rome. And that's what the leaders of Israel are afraid is going to happen with Jesus, All these people are interested. I mean, just imagine the timing of it, right? Like Jesus raises Lazarus just in time to build up all this energy before Passover. And then all these faithful nationalistic Jewish people are gathering in Jerusalem in the capital around this guy, Jesus. Like this is a powder keg. This is is a recipe for disaster. And the leadership of Israel is very concerned. 
They're very worried that everybody's going to follow Jesus and Jesus is going to rise up and lead them all in rebellion against Rome. And that's the feeling here. You got to understand that feeling of rebellion, that fear of rebellion. This is why you see just before our passage, you see the chief priests and the Pharisees mentioned in the same verse. Now, the Pharisees were a religious group. They weren't particularly involved with the temple. They weren't particularly involved with the leadership of the nation, but they were the spiritual leaders of the people. The chief priests are the leaders of the nation. They run the temple. Pharisees and chief priests don't get along. They don't like each other generally. In fact, oftentimes Pharisees think that chief priests are sellouts because the chief priests are just trying to keep peace with Rome. And the Pharisees are more concerned about personal and private morality than they are the leadership of the nation. And so these two don't normally work together. But just before our passage here, we're told that the chief priests and the Pharisees have gathered together because they're afraid of the popularity of Jesus. And they're looking for an opportunity to arrest him and take him into custody. So it's already begun. Like they're already plotting to end Jesus before all this happens. And now he's here in Bethany and the people are gathering and they're terrified. The leaders are terrified. Because if they try to rebel against Rome and they fail, what's going to happen? Jerusalem is going to get squashed. Rome doesn't care about the Jewish religion. Rome does not care about these people. They just want peace in the empire. And so if the Jewish people rise up in rebellion and Rome brings its legions and brings its armies out and they squash the rebellion, Jerusalem's done. In fact, that exact thing will happen about 35 years after this. The Jews will rise up against Rome. Rome will bring legions into Jerusalem to besiege it. The Jewish people will rise up in rebellion and the Roman legions will destroy the Jewish temple in 70 AD. So, it's not out of the question that that's what's going to happen now. It's not out of the question that, that, that that's kind of the risk that they're running with the popularity of Jesus. This is why they want Jesus dead. This is why the leaders of Israel are planning to kill Jesus. And so we read that the people are gathered around. They're looking for Jesus. The chief priests and Pharisees are trying to arrest him. They're trying to get rid of him. And then the next verses here, we all of a sudden come that that Jesus is now coming into Jerusalem. Okay, it's the next day. It's the day after Jesus arrived in Bethany, and he's going to go into Jerusalem because it's the beginning of Passover. And everybody's around, gathered together, saying, Happy Holidays, Happy Festival, Chag Sameach. They're all super excited. And Jesus walks out of the house in Bethany, and you can imagine this crowd surrounding him, and he's he's walking up the Mount of Olives, And he's going to enter Jerusalem. And those people who were looking to Jesus, thinking, here's our Messiah, here's our Christ, they're like, yes, here it is. It's happening. Let's go. It's go time. Grab your sword. Grab your shield. It's time to overthrow Rome. And they're excited. And they start grabbing palm branches. And they start laying them down in front of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. There is not a biblical precedent for this. You can't go to the Bible and say, like, are you supposed to lay palm branches down in front of Messiah or in front of God? Like, why are they doing this? We don't really question it because we celebrate Palm Sunday every year. But it doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible that you lay palm branches down before the king or before anybody. I think the precedent for this is actually about 170 years before Jesus, there was this guy named Simon Maccabeus who led the Jewish people to independence. 
You see, they were being ruled over by a different, uh, a different empire at that time, 170 years before Jesus. And this guy named Simon Maccabeus rises up and he leads a revolt. He leads a rebellion and he takes Jerusalem. And as he victoriously takes Jerusalem, the people are laying palm branches down in front of Simon Maccabeus, celebrating the victory over the oppressors. And so these people who are now laying palm branches down in front of Jesus... I think they're imagining that. They're imagining Simon Maccabeus coming into Jerusalem, driving out the oppressors. That's what they want. And so they're all ready. It's go time. We're going to go. We're going to drive the Romans out. Yeah, our king has come. And then the next verse happens. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And the people are like, what? Wait, huh? This, this doesn't make any sense. See, the people are there. They're singing Hosanna. They're singing Psalm 118. They're excited about Jesus coming. They're ready to drive out the Romans. And what they're looking for is a warrior on a war horse. What they're looking for is a king ready to make war. And then Jesus gets onto a donkey. The symbol of peace. Jesus is declaring in his actions, I'm not what you think I am. I'm not who you think I am. This isn't going to shake out the way you think it is. I'm not Simon. I'm not a Maccabee. I'm not leading revolt. In fact, Jesus is saying in riding on this donkey and sitting upon this donkey, Jesus is saying, I'm the king who brings peace. It's almost as though Jesus is saying to these people, did you not forget that I'm the king who raises the dead? Did you not forget that I'm the king who loves tenderly? Did you, did you forget that I'm the king who comes to, to raise little boys from the dead and to hug grieving sisters? Did you forget my character? Did you forget my nature? Did you forget who I am? Jesus doesn't come riding a war horse. He doesn't come in military might. He doesn't come in power to drive out the Roman oppressor. He comes on a donkey to enter into the temple of his father, to enter into the house of the God who sent him. This is who our King Jesus is. He's the King who raises the dead, who hugs grieving sisters who cares deeply for his people, who doesn't want to see them suffer or in pain, and who brings about wholeness and peace for them. Jesus is the one who comes in peace. And that's why we read here in verse 15, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's a reference from the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now, the words, don't be afraid, aren't there. They come from Isaiah. But what's happening there is that God is reassuring his people in Jerusalem, I'm coming to you, but I'm not coming in judgment. I'm coming in peace. All too often in the Old Testament, when God tells his people who are living in Jerusalem, hey, I'm coming to you, he's coming in judgment. He's coming to correct their wrongs. 
Right? He's, he's coming to, to fix the problems. But this time in Zechariah 9, God is saying to his people in Jerusalem, I'm coming to you on a donkey. I'm coming in peace. And when I come, if you continue to read that chapter, God is saying, when I come, I will break the swords of the nations. When I come, I will end war. When I come, there will be no violence. There will be no conflict. When I come, I will bring peace to all all the nations, and I will take my throne as the king of the whole earth. I am coming on a donkey. And John is letting us know that when Jesus sits on this donkey, he's declaring that he's the God who comes in peace. He's the God who comes to break the swords of the nations and to bring about peace. When Jesus comes riding on this donkey, he's going to overturn every expectation of the military Messiah that the people have. That's who our King Jesus is. And his disciples, the guys who follow Jesus, man, they're totally confused by this donkey business. Like, they're on board when people are singing Hosanna, blessed be the king. They're on board when they're like, yeah, it's go time, let's drive out Rome. Like, that's what they're expecting too. Now, these are guys who have lived with Jesus, who have walked with Jesus, who have listened to Jesus, who have been conformed to Jesus. They're following Jesus as their rabbi. Their one desire in all of the world is to become in every way like their rabbi Jesus, just as it should be for all of us. And yet all the time that they've spent with him, as much as they've heard him teach, as much as they've seen his character on display, this confuses them. Because they're like, where's the horse? Where's the war horse? Where's the army? Jesus, you have got hundreds of thousands of people. You need to capitalize on this energy and drive out Rome. Jesus, do you realize that even right now there is a Roman garrison, there is a legion of Roman soldiers inside the temple of Yahweh? That's blasphemy. Jesus, don't you know that when Herod the Great built this temple, he put a Roman eagle over the top of it, branding the Jewish temple as a Roman project? Don't you know, Jesus, how far afield this temple is? Don't you understand how unfaithful these people are? It is time for us to rise up in power. It is time for us to rise up and throw these Romans out. It's time to pick up swords, not ride a stinking donkey, Jesus. Then he hops on the donkey, and his disciples are like, dude, I don't get it. I, just, I don't even, I don't get it. And we're told it wasn't until Jesus was glorified, that is, until he had died and risen again and appeared to them in his resurrection state, it wasn't until then that they understood the significance of that donkey, that they understood Jesus as the God who comes in peace, the God who comes to bring peace, the God who comes to break swords, not wield them. It wasn't until they saw him raised again that they realized the subversive character of Jesus' kingdom. And wouldn't we make the same assumption? Wouldn't we do the same thing? We live in a triumphalistic, power-hungry world where we think we overcome, we think we win by wielding the sword. We think that if we beat our weapons into plowshares that people are going to overtake us and kill us and run us through. And we wonder, how in the world could that be productive? And as followers of Jesus, we forget that everybody surrounding Jesus, everybody with Jesus was asking that exact same question. God, how do you win like this? 
God, how on earth do you win by dying? How do you win by riding a donkey? How do you win by turning away the warriors who are there to fight for you? How do, how do you win this way, God? It doesn't make any sense. They wondered the same thing that we do. And yet this is the way of Christ, of self-sacrificial love. This is the way that God wins. This is the way that God defeats his enemies. Not by taking up the sword against them, but by allowing them to exhaust all of their evil power and authority on himself. That's what will happen. Jesus is headed to the cross. There is no question about it. The plan of the Pharisees and the chief priests is going to come to pass. They are going to get what they want, and they're going to think they've won. They're going to think that they've squashed this movement. They're going to think that the Messiah is done, that this pretender to the throne is done. They're going to think that they've won. Because they cannot imagine victory through death. They cannot possibly imagine how Jesus' movement could continue, how his life could continue, how he could win victory by dying. And yet that's exactly what Jesus will do. You see, the Pharisees and the chief priests suffered the same misconceptions as everybody else. They thought Jesus was coming in military might and in power. They thought that he was coming to wield the sword and they were terrified by it because it meant they would lose their position. They would lose their authority. They would lose their power. They would lose their privilege. They made the same mistake as everybody else. And they followed through with their plan. Throughout history, tyrants have tried to end the church by power, by wielding the sword. And you know how the church has survived? You know how the church has won through it all? You know how it has thrived through it all? Not by rising up with swords and hands. Not by arming itself to the teeth and fighting back. Not by trying to create new nations and winning war after war. The church has thrived through suffering. The church has thrived through every threat it has faced throughout its history by remaining faithful to the king who died for it. By following in the footsteps of our King Jesus who rode not a war horse into Jerusalem but a donkey. By faithfully following the example of self-sacrificial love of our King Jesus. By relying not on our own sense of judgment, by relying not on our own power or strength or the, the authority of our arms, but relying on the King who died for us and leaving judgment in His hands leaving power and authority in his hands, allowing him to have the last word, trusting and knowing that our good and beautiful God, our glorious God, our self-giving God, our all-powerful God, he will have the last word, not me. I don't need to. You see, when I know that my God gets the last word, when I know that my God who gave himself for me, that my God who loves me, that my God who has adopted me, who's cared for me, when I know that he has the last word in all things, that he will be the one who brings judgment, that he will be the one who rights wrongs, that he will be the one who overthrows dictators and powers, I don't have to. I can stay faithful to my King Jesus and walk in his way. 
in the way of self-sacrificial love, in the way of laying myself down even for my enemies, in valuing the life of others above my own even when those others hate me because that's precisely how Jesus lived. That's precisely the example that he has left us with, that he has given us to live through. Following Jesus is not practical. Following Jesus makes no sense in the grand scheme of things. Laying my life down, giving it to the God who saved me, giving it to the God who who walked through death to bring me life, following in his footsteps, riding the donkey as Jesus did, walking in peace, and choosing the way of Christ is not practical. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And there will be times in our lives when we ask ourselves, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right thing to do? Is following Jesus really going to to lead to flourishing for me and for others? There will be so many times in our lives, if we're really faithful to Jesus, that we will wonder about the practicality of these things. And we will have to be reminded that our God is the one who has all things in hand. That our good God is the one who has the last word. That our God is the one who ensures that all things will be made right in the end. That we must be reminded that the Christian movement began with a death and a resurrection, not with a war horse. That we must be reminded that we are saved and adopted by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not by the sword that he held. If we want to be faithful to Jesus, if we want to follow him, if we want to love like he does, it's going to hurt at times. It's going to mean sacrifice at times. It will mean, like Jesus, riding the totally impractical donkey of peace into war zones and saying, I give my life for my God. I give my life for your good. I will lay down my privilege. I will lay down my my, uh, comforts. I will lay down my own peace so that I can bring you the peace of Christ, so that I can take the love of God to my enemies, just as Jesus did for me. And it's only in trusting in our king on the donkey, it's only in trusting the slaughtered lamb who sits on the throne of God that we can be sure he has all things in hand. He will have the final word. And so no matter how impractical it looks like to follow him in the here and now, no matter, no matter how much it may look like weakness, no matter how much it may look like we will be rolled over and steamrolled by the world, we walk faithful to him above all in his upside-down, backwards way of life because we recognize it's how God wins. It's how God brings about salvation for you and me. Because the alternative, the alternative to him walking and taking the cross was for us to take the cross. The alternative to Jesus dying for us was us dying for ourselves. The alternative to to Jesus walking the way of peace that would destroy his body would be for our bodies to be destroyed and to be separated from God forever. The alternative to Jesus walking to the cross is me taking up the cross 
and trying to bear the weight of it on my own, trying to earn God's love, to earn God's favor, trying to become holy on my own. But Jesus walked to the cross for you and for me. He rode that donkey into a war zone where he knew that he would lose his life for you and for me so that we could be holy before our God, so that we could be made like him. It is through the impractical cross and the way of peace that we are redeemed and made holy before God. And it is through the impractical way of the cross and the walk of peace that we can be agents of God's transformation for our neighbors as we show them what Jesus really looks like in our lives and in our words. Trust in your good God today who has all things in hand, who has the final words, so that you too can walk the way of peace as Christ walked it, so you too can walk in self-sacrificial love and demonstrate for a world that views power in a radically different way that the way of peace, the way of the cross, is the way to transformation, is the way to life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this episode in the life of Jesus. Thank you that our king rode a donkey and not a war horse. God, we, we recognize today that if, if you had taken up the sword, Lord, we wouldn't be on your side. We would be at the end of the sword. God, we recognize today that if you had come as a warrior in, in, in war, Lord, we would not be on your side. We would be your enemies. So we thank you, Lord, for walking the way of peace, for walking the way to the cross, for taking up our sin and our shame, and for allowing all of the evil and the power of the world to exhaust itself in your body. Thank you for rising again, Jesus, in victory over everything that stands against your people, for offering us freedom and wholeness. And I pray, Lord, that we would faithfully walk the way of peace as Christ has walked it, that we would be a subversive people, not bowing to the culture of the world, not bowing to the, the systems of power that exist around us, but walking in faithfulness to our God who gave himself for us. And Lord, as we give ourselves for our neighbors, I pray for radical transformation in the life of our community, for your shalom to rule and reign, your peace, your wholeness, your goodness, all the gifts that you can give that come by way of your risen son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for calling us together as your people, and thank you for the high honor and privilege that it is to walk in your steps, Jesus. It is in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.